Okay, shit. This is not ideal, but I don't know what else I'm going to do. I've been trying to find a good winter spot to do the streams. And uh, one I was trying, I guess, doesn't work. I couldn't get the uh, enough signal, so I guess I'm going to have to do it in here for now. I don't really like this angle terribly much, but uh, we'll figure it out. I'll figure something out. Patience, please. Ah. Uh, shit, I don't know. Sorry. Uh, I should have done more research before I started this, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I don't want to be a cam boy. I don't want to cam it up. I don't want people seeing uh, my groin. I'm trying to be loved for my mind, not for my, uh, my eroticism. This isn't the living room anymore. I didn't like that. I didn't like that. I don't want that. I'm trying to figure out a new space for the winter. I'll find something. But for now, this is good enough. Whew. All right. Quality is killer. Oh, good. I thought you were saying a killer, and I was going to have to jump out of a window. I'm not going to do a Jeffrey Tube out. You don't have to worry about that happening. Uh, okay. Um, so it's been a while. Been a while since I've been talking to you. Been a while since I've been doing stuff here. Uh, I don't, what does combing your beard mean? I don't even know how that would work. I do have to trim it. I will. I will trim it. I don't have a theory on the, the Nashville bomber because how, I don't have any more information than anybody else does. And, and theorizing in the absence of information is just giving yourself mental illness. And I'm trying to prevent that. I've done that enough in my life. I will say that the story as given seems really implausible. And now we find out that the police had known about this for a year, that his girlfriend said he was building bombs, and they put her in the mental hospital because of it. And amazingly, people are taking this as an opportunity to say, we need to talk about white terrorism, and this is terrorism, and they should have put this guy on a watch list. Uh, as though that was the issue, and not the fact that the government has all of these dudes on string, apparently, that they can pluck at any time. The thing I can't get over, and once again, I have no knowledge or information. I don't know what's going on. I can't say definitively one way or the other what the deal is here. But if you were the government or some faction within the government and you had cause to blow up a uh, data center and the 5G, whatever the hell they did, and you wanted to look like a nut, the NSA's access to the information of essentially every American is such that you could build a profile of a plausible suspect and then just find one. Go through social media uh, chatter, go through posts, go through personal information until you found someone who could be realistically sold as a, a perpetrator. And then, at that point, it's trivially easy. I mean, apparently they're just, they identified this guy from some DNA. For all we know, somebody showed up at his house one day, stuck him with a syringe full of uh, cyanide, stuck him in the van, and then blew him up. 
Or hell, maybe they didn't even bother doing that. Maybe they dug a hole and put him in it and just put some of his like, scraped skin cells onto a fucking a, a article of clothing. And the that that's just a terrifying reality, is that the one thing that kind of pushes against uh, the claims that a lot of these terror attacks are false flags or, you know, provoke, provoked by the government is that, well, a lot of these guys, they are. They do have screw looses. They do have histories of making posts that are erratic or paranoid. The thing is, there are millions of people that that is true of. There are millions of people who could plausibly be framed as a domestic terrorist from their, just from their social media posts alone. And if you could do that, you have, you have, if you can find someone and you can pluck them, you've got a, uh, yes, I am jacking off. What else do you want me to do? What, you asked, somebody asked me about the goddamn thing. I don't know any more than you do. Why, why would you ask me? What do you want out of it? Literally all you can do is ask questions. There's nothing else except what I should say, we should really talk about white terrorism as though the coming austerity nightmare of the Biden administration is not going to be a perfect opportunity to take the totalizing surveillance uh, and uh, police coercive apparatus that was put uh, for use and has been put for use against minorities in this country from time immemorial to now apply it to, to white people too. And, and, and we have a, and this is not going to provide a ready-made narrative to justify that. It's, it's just, it's a scary time. That's all I know. And when shit like this happens, uh, seeing people just bay for more surveillance and bay for a more hysterical media response to justify further, you know, a, a more, what, a more just distribution of police crackdown and calling that justice? I mean, people have been saying that that's the trajectory for years, that privileged discourse leads to an argument that boils down to uh, it's not you're not really going to realistically get the state to stop killing minorities when they're disproportionately economically disadvantaged, but you could get to a place where we're killing more white people, and then you've lost the element of discrimination. And if that's the problem, then you've solved it. And if we're looking down the barrel of you know a, a nightmare austerity realignment of politics and the economy, a further immiseration of everyone, a further dissolving of all labor relations that are not last-minute, uh, just-in-time, gig-economy survival. That the idea of having security in work is becomes as much a, a relic of the past as like a pension. That's going to have consequences. People are going to be pissed about it. People are going to react violently one way or the other. And are we going to allow, I mean, we are going to allow, there's no question about that, but we are going to watch as, uh, as all of the language of diversity and justice, social justice, are used to justify the police doing what they've always done, just more... Uh, Egalitarian, a more egalitarian distribution of, of violence and repression.
I mean, look at the thing with the $2,000 checks. Why is all the elite against this shit? When, just from an economic perspective, it would be good. Like, everyone at the top, they know the deficit stuff's bullshit. They know the deficit's not real. They know that the money could be spent. They, we've already dropped way more money than that at the top of the income level just since the COVID thing happened. We could do it again. It's just numbers on a fucking piece of paper. And it would don't stimulate cons consumer spending, which is the literal lifeblood, the literal organ of the, our economy. But it would also give people a little more leverage against their maximally uh, uh, precarious employment. People would might be, be less likely to take these jobs in the conditions that uh, these companies are willing to offer. And that is the business model. The business model of our, uh, our consumer economy uh, involves paying people the minimum amount with no benefits, maximum flexibility. And the one thing that stops people from taking those jobs is if they don't have to take them. And even a little bit of breathing room, and certainly if it's established as a precedent and, and, and becomes something that could be politically activated through pressure on elected officials, it, it changes the coercive uh, mechanism. It makes it harder to get people to do these jobs. And so precarity is one stick. The other stick is our total surveillance police state. And they're working hand in hand to ensure that the economy in the aftermath of COVID is maximally coercive and maximally exploitative to, to workers. And yes, that is also, someone says here, that's why they will not, we will not provide houses for homeless people. Because if being homeless is a condition that does not leave you in total uh, abjection, if you are not, if, if, if being homeless, if losing your ability to pay your rent does not mean, well, you're going to sleep in the streets. You're going to sleep under uh, a overpass. There's going to be spikes on every uh, flat surface to prevent you from doing anything other than lying in a gutter. And then the cop's going to come and beat your fucking head in and, and uh, set fire to your tent. If that doesn't exist as the, the economic gun to your head, that's another reason you might not take these shitty fucking jobs. Because that is the worst thing that could happen to anyone in this country, is to become homeless. That is the nightmare. That is when you are no longer a citizen. That is when you become a homo sasur, from a Gambins, and, and that, is, that is a fate worse than death, and it is the fear buried within the mind of anybody who does not have uh, control over anything other than their ability to work, and that's most people in this country. And if that goes away, if, if that's less terrifying, if the, hey, you know, I might not be able to rent my apartment anymore, but there's social housing I might be able to get, well, shit. There's another thing that's going to prevent you from taking a job on the terms of Uber or Lyft or DoorDash or some fucking grocery store company that says you have to work uh, in a COVID hotspot, getting coughed, getting your mouth coughed in for no benefits. Like these are all choices, and they're all pushed, and they're all choices that are made on the same terms and to, to create the same situation, which is people who are cowed politically and also economically, cowed by their employer, cowed by the political class, 
at every step. And that's why they're trying to get us to a vaccine herd immunity situation before they have to start shelling out real money. They have to avoid that at all kinds, at all at all costs. And that is the beauty of eternal Chancellor uh, Mitch McConnell's position here. You've got a deal where basically everybody says give people money, Democrats and Republicans, even in Congress, and the president. And the guy who's supposed to be coming in in January at least has said his mouth, the words that he wants it. But because of the distribution of, of veto points within our system, this one guy, Mitch McConnell, who is answers to nobody and has no, uh, cannot be checked uh, by, by public pressure, gets to say no. And then everybody gets to act like he's the reason it's not happening. And he's fine with that. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about being popular. He has the state of Kentucky wired. He doesn't, it doesn't matter. The same way Harry Reid had Nevada wired. These guys, those guys in those positions who are essentially the prime ministers, like that's the thing to know is that we are supposed to have this weird presidential system where the head of state and head of government are the same person. But on the domestic level anyway, at the, and the, and the, at the level of domestic policy, over the last 20 years, we, are now in a we have created a situation where the Senate majority leader is effectively the prime minister. And the president is effectively a, a constitutional monarch or a figurehead elected president in a parliamentary system. And so Mitch McConnell is the actual head of government. But he is not in charge of some, you know, electoral coalition that is, uh, that has to rise or fall. Everybody gets to run individually. Purdue and Loeffler get to run on, yes, we're in favor of the, the $2,000 checks, even though the guy in their party who they elected to be majority leader is opposing it. And of course, the only reason they say they're for the checks is because they know he's there. It's the same reason Biden says he's for the checks, because he knows Mitch McConnell's there. If Mitch McConnell wasn't there and, the and, and there was a, like a real... Uh, uh, like, account, like public accountability for a decision like whether or not to give people money in a time like this, then, then it would be much more difficult to avoid it. But here, it's the perfect structure to prevent anyone from being accountable for the decision to let people fucking starve. And, and there's no, and it's, and the Constitution essentially exists to make this happen. And a constitutional order will only promote, procreate situations like this because that's the point of it. That's why it was conceived. And at every level, it's been modified and changed both without through constitutional uh, amendments and then through in, within through the, the evolution of uh, like internal Senate rules has created a situation where there can be no one responsible or the person who's responsible gets to take all the blame, gets to eat all the sin, gets to put all of the hatred into his fucking neck waddle, and everyone else gets to uh, wash their hands of the thing. It's very, it's, it's, it's ingenious, and it's why the Constitution needed to die after the Civil War. And the fact that it didn't is one of, is, is like the signal political uh, failure of the American project. And I keep going back to that. Uh, 
And that brings us to, uh, brings us back anyway to the Republic for which it stands, which I read the rest of chap of part one for the, the fourth through eighth chapters, uh, where we really get into some good stuff with this within these parts so that we can really sink our teeth and in, teeth into uh, when talking about the way that elites structured the. Uh, political response to the Civil War uh, in such a way to prevent democracy, essentially, from taking place. Uh, and one of, my, one of the most interesting parts of, the, of, the, of this section, I think, is in the first chapter, Gilded Liberals, which talks about the hegemonic uh, ruling, the hegemonic ideological domination of liberalism, 19th century liberalism, which in its Particulars, like in in its policy proposals, like hard money, uh, laissez-faire, is what we would consider republicanism nowadays, conservatism. But the personnel who make it up, class-wise, are the same people now who are progressives, who are liberals in the in the twenty-first century sense. And we and we we talk about how like oh that's the, like these terms have changed meaning, but the liberal social position has not changed since the Civil War. Like, liberals then are the same people who are now uh, opinion makers, writers, professionals, uh, 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 professors, theoreticians, the people who create the ideological framework that goes around, that packs just the machinery of capitalist accumulation. And in the 19th century, that their rest, after the Civil War, the recipe was laissez-faire, gold standard, all that stuff. Then, uh, after the Gilded Age, after this book concludes, you get the rise of the progressive movement, where it's the same people, maybe not the same actual people, but people in the same position, who have recognized by that point that their dream of creating this smallholder democracy, where freedom is freedom of contract alone, is no longer viable, given the fact that, oh, freedom of contract alone has led to the mass accumulation of of power by these unaccountable robber barons and huge immiseration of workers and regular people and the death of the smallholder, well, then we have to adjust. Because what's important to note is even in the laissez-faire mid-19th century, they never, there was never any um, belief by anyone that that, that meant real laissez-faire because that's not a real thing. Government intervention is, it's a, it's, inextricable from economics. Like, the government makes the context where all economic activity takes place. So government intervention is non-negotiable. It's all about degree. And at every point, what, what liberals, who then became progressives, uh, demand is a, the degree of government intervention that will maintain the stability of capitalism. And that changes as conditions change. Right after the Civil War, they thought gold standard, no government intervention is enough. Of course, railroad subsidies are fine. That's, in fact, necessary. I mean, we might be a little annoyed by, uh, you know, these guys getting this, but, you know, well, we got we to gotta put this money somewhere, and we just can't give it to people. That's the main thing, is that, is that the, the, the imperative of, like, an a ideological ruling, political ruling class is to ensure that economic decisions are made by those who hold capital 
And those who hold capital are those who uh, are at the at the top, essentially. That it is concentrated in the hands of those who can be trusted with it. Uh, White talks about how uh, the fixation on the home and the ability to make a home, which of course is just a a, a filigreed and uh, and romantically infused mystification of the ability to, uh, you know, control capital. Uh, at that point, after the Homestead Act, the, the thought was that all the capital anyone would need to sustain that home is a little bit of land. And so people should seek that. And uh, that, like, the exploitation of wage, slave, wa- wage relationships, which we're now taking over from slavery after the end of the Civil War, were temporary. Uh, but of course, the maddening thing uh, is the refusal to extend that logic to the recently freed slaves. To extend the logic of, oh, you know, a, a home requires a, a capital in the form of land, in the form of the ability to reproduce oneself. Um, then former slaves need that. They need the land. And there's no argument you can make that they don't, that they didn't work for it because they literally work for nothing their entire lives. But that would be government intervention in the market, and we can't have that. Um, and what that boils down to, I think more, more specifically than, more than racism, and of course racism is hugely important, but because of racism, but also because of the, the reality of sectionalism after the war, like the, the, the domination of the South by the North, uh, uh, former slaves were just not considered to be part of the citizenry. And all of these ideas about homes and all that, they only applied to citizens. And, of course, that's not sustainable because people who these people, the, the, the gilded liberals considered citizens or considered to be like unfit for citizenship, former slaves, urban Catholics, Native Americans, we're still there. We're still part of the American project. And over time, we're going to assert their rights as such. Uh, and it's that failure to recognize that that really defines the relationship between like a political ruling class and the the people who are subject to that political rule is that there has to be the maintenance of a sort of a choke point where where people are turned into citizen or not uh and that and that is necessary and in fact vital to maintaining the divisions within the social order that allow exploitation to accumulate and, and allow uh, and allow capitalists to literally set people against each other uh, to avoid them coming together to assert a broad right to capital, to, to the fruits of their labor. Uh, but the thing I wanted to talk about is uh, specifically the 
the the establishment of the gold standard uh, after the Civil War, because during the Civil War, uh, the 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 Union paid for the war uh, by printing money, just printing some fucking money. That's that's what they did, uh, and that's what they had to do. And they 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 put out a bunch of bonds, and they uh, and they backed those bonds with greenbacks. Uh, after the Civil War, though, uh, there was an insistence by the Republican ruling party, which was dominated by ex-Whig merchants, uh, to reduce the amount of money in circulation and get the money that was in circulation under, over time to be backed not by the cre credit of the government, not by fiat, which is what we have now, uh, and which they were terrified of having uh, with gold. Uh, and I want to see if I can find the part. Uh, and there was a bunch of arguments for why that was necessary, why we needed gold, and a lot of it was uh, was put in moral terms. It's it's not moral to 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 back exchange with just force, with just the promise of government. You needed real value. You needed real intrinsic value. Of course, gold does not have intrinsic value. You can't eat it. You can't do anything with it that sustains your life, which is what value is. All you can do is melt it down and use it as an exchange. That's the value, is that it is something that is durable and can hold its value. That's it. It's not, it is not intrinsically valuable. The idea of intrinsic value in gold is pure ideology. It's pure mysticism. It, has, it, it does not reflect any reality. Uh, it is just something that liberals told themselves and told other people as a way to increase the power of finance capital at the expense of regular Americans. That's it. Uh, And there's two things about the gold standard that I wanted to talk about. One is that uh, having a gold standard okay, so it going to the gold standard gave a huge windfall to the people who held government bonds. I'll read this part from 185. Uh, the government had not specified how the wartime bonds principle would be repaid. Since at the height of inflation in 1864, a greenback dollar had been worth only 34% of a gold dollar, redeeming the gold, the bond in gold, represented as much as a tripling of the original investment in addition to the interest already paid. Bondholders would reap a wonderful windfall if the government paid in gold. Taxpayers would assume an additional burden. If, however... The government redeemed its bonds with greenbacks, there would be no windfall. And so 
the redemption of government bonds in gold gave people free money if they held the bonds, which was the richest Americans, which was the, the financial institutions. And even though the need for gold was supposed to stop the horrors of fiat currency, somehow, even though now we are at the end nightmare state that these mid-19th century liberals would have hated of, of fiat currency, we have a similar situation now where bankers are able to insure money through the discount window at the Fed, which allows them to borrow at a lower rate than they lend out and keep the difference. And it's the same people in charge. It's the same fucking institutions that made money off the gold standard when it was introduced and now are able to insure profits no matter what conditions, uh, what economic conditions obtain uh, through in, in this era of fiat money. And now very few people want to go back to the gold standard, but, but the, the moralistic language about debt is still there. Uh, but the most interesting part about uh, the, the gold standard uh, is, and the real reason that it was pushed for beyond the need you know, to, to um, provide a windfall for bankers, and the only really like non-ideological and non-self-interested argument for it is the fact that the British were on the gold standard and they were the biggest economy in the world at that time and trade with, with the UK was vital to America's economic fortunes. Uh, and they could essentially punish those who did not use the gold standard. So from 187 here, with the, gold, uh, with the gold standard, the United States would, in effect, cede control of its interest rates and money supply to Great Britain, the world's largest creditor nation. The gold standard depended on a country having access to enough gold to redeem its currency on demand. When London controlled a large portion of that gold, Great Britain and the Bank of England acquired inordinate influence over the fiscal and economic policies of other governments. The gold standard created what economists have called a golden straitjacket. Debtor nations would exchange control over their monetary policy for capital mobility and stable exchange rates. Although the cost of borrowing abroad would fall, the United States would lose the ability to drive domestic interest rates below international interest rates. Gold dollars would flee abroad if interest rates elsewhere were higher. Now, if that sounds familiar to anybody, that's essentially every other uh, uh, debtor nation in the world's government's relation, uh, economic relationship to the United States. Now, we cannot, uh, we have, whoever is in charge, whoever is the headquarters of global capitalism has a veto on the economic, the, the fiduciary and like monetary policy of every country that depends on them for trade. And in the 19th century, the mid-19th century, it was the UK that called the shots on that. Now, in our, in our fiat uh, uh, world, it's the United States, or broadly the institutions that the United States basically controls. And even though this current situation is a nightmare for the people who imagined that they were creating some stable system post-war, and if you got them in a time machine and showed it to them, they might be horrified, their descendants defend it with their lives. Because... All that really matters is that the bankers, that banks are in charge of money, not people.
So that's interesting. Uh, I also want to just say that the book has a lot of great pictures of uh, 19th century political cartoons, which really are great, and it does feel like they got a lot worse over time. I think the reason people like Ben Garrison so much is that he is sort of almost one of the few political cartoonists who has like a 19th century verve to him. Uh, part of that is labeling everything. But I just wanted to point out, this is probably my favorite Thomas Nast cartoon, at least of the ones I've seen, and it's in here. It's an anti-Catholic ad. As you can see here, there's crocodiles coming out of the river, the American River Ganges, but if you look closer, their crocodile mouths are actually uh, mitres because they're fucking Catholic bishops who are coming on shore to attack the children with their popery. And I gotta say, knowing now what we know about the Catholic Church, uh, he, Nast was a little prescient there. But that's in there because Nast talk, because uh, White talks about uh, one of the signal uh, conflicts of the era between Protestantism and Catholicism, uh, which emerged over the, fund, the public funding of uh, parochial schools. And he stresses something that people, especially people on the right who, who fixate on the questions like of, of American secularism really miss is that we did not get secular public schools out of some drive of like godlessness. It, it's not like people just people at the top just decided actually uh, we don't like God and we want to dethrone him, so we're going to take God out of schools. What happened was is you had a situation after the Civil War where you had huge Catholic uh, majorities in some urban cities and and a demand for Catholic schooling that would in, in have Catholic you know, social teaching and, and biblical interpretation in it. Uh, and you had public schools which had Bible study and, and biblical uh, instruction that was explicitly Protestant. And the Catholics said, that's not fair. If we're, if we can't, I don't want to send, we don't want to send our kids there, but it's not fair to make us pay for parochial schools when this, th these are public schools that are uh, funded by public taxation. And the, uh, the secular model for education essentially came out of a desire to, uh, to neutralize the conflict between the, those, those two systems. Because the Protestants did not want to pay for Catholic schooling. It went against their, uh, their principles or whatever. Uh, but they, in the courts anyway, were not able to consist, to able to coherently argue that there should be some dual standard where Protestantism is enshrined in public schools, and if you want Catholicism, you're going to have to go to a, a private school, the solution was, let's just get God out of school entirely. And that was the reasonable compromise. Like What people are mad at, the, the compromises, the, the, the secularism we created was an attempt to accommodate religiosity, not the absence of religiosity. Uh, and also, by the way, uh, the way people talk about Islam now is exactly the way that mainstream Protestants talked about Catholicism in the 19th century. Because these are just cycles. These are cycles of assimilation uh, and anxiety that, that recur over time. Uh, so other things from the section we read. Uh, 
as much as I have a very soft spot for uh, U.S. Grant, and I feel like he did some good stuff as president, uh, the section on Grant definitely un- underlines how he, he, the job was too big for him because this was the moment. This era was when, like, what American political institutions were going to look like came into being, and he had no idea. He had he was he had no actual political convictions, uh, and you know that works at a time like say 1952 when Eisenhower comes in there, when we have like a solidified New Deal post-war New Deal consensus to operate off of, but in the ferment of the post-war era, Grant was was not really the ideal guy. Uh, but he did some good stuff. He was able to destroy the Klan when he really tried to, but uh, the real hope of the Republican elite at that time was that they could sort of let the South figure it out by itself uh, and really only drop the hammer when the Redeemer violence got too outlandish for them to ignore, too horrifying and too too bloody, uh, like after the Colfax massacre in Louisiana. Uh, but it, but Republican orthodoxy essentially forswore any inter, like consistent intervention uh, on behalf of ex-slaves. And if we're talking about counterfactuals and how things could have gone differently, um, you essentially would have needed a different. You would have needed a different political coalition than the one who ruled, because who we ended up, who ended up on top of the political. Uh, heap during this period was a Republican Party that was divided basically between Orthodox liberals who are trying to create a laissez-faire economic system that would have doomed the South black and white no matter what, uh, and the stalwarts who were basically, who who were more populist but had, as the flip side of populism, uh, a motivation of, of corruption. And they are really two sides of the same coin in that the the corruption of like the, the Democrats under Tweed or the, the um, Republican stalwarts uh, and the anti-corruption of the liberal Republicans, reformers, were in both cases driven by uh, economic incentive. For the liberal Republicans, safely enmeshed in, 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 in or near finance, uh, their drive for clean government and anti-democratic institutions was on behalf of the emerging uh, merchant and capitalist elite. There was more populism to, you know, a guy like Benjamin Butler or or Tweed, but and and they spread their uh, their wealth more, you know, in the sense like Tammany putting out patronage jobs and, and giving money to the poor, but they were similarly beholden to existing economic powers. They were just coming in the back door. Like the liberals were coming in the front door, all nice and legal. The, the stalwarts and the Democrats were coming in the back door. But everybody had a handout to the people who had accumulated all that capital after the Civil War and, and uh, after the... Uh, the emergence of the railroad-based economy, railroad speculative economy, to come afterwards. So any kind of counterfactual post-war, post-war, post-Civil War America would have had, 
ha, would have had to have created a, a third, a, a different force, a different coherent, organized uh, demand that went beyond the parochial demands of you know like this Irish Catholics in the city or or whatever, and. Imagining that happening requires a lot of, a lot of things falling differently. Uh, and maybe it couldn't have happened, I don't know. But, you know, there always had to have been something else that could have happened, because if not, there's no point to anything. Now, there was eventually an emerging force in the form of the labor movement and the populist movement, but they came too late. They came after, like, uh, the working class became a more coherent and larger and more effective self-conscious political actor. And when and after, you know, the farmers of the West were able to sort of do a uh, a smallholder ver version of working class organization. But by the time they emerged. To resist capitalism, capitalism has become a complete behemoth. And really what you needed to change the equation was the ex-slaves. The, 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 the integer that could have changed the political equation of the post-war era was the political uh, awareness, mobilization, and a coordination of of the freedmen people in in alliance with smallholding whites and the urban working class that's the only way it would have worked and by the 1890s you know uh, the the failure of reconstruction had ensured that the kind of connections that would have been necessary to build such an alliance were impossible So, book's good. I'm enjoying it. Uh, we're going to talk next Wednesday about, let's do the first, let's do the first four chapters of part four for next Wednesday. This book. I love when people ask the book. Well, how long? When are you coming in? Because the Republican household that was supposed to be uh, the, the the modus operandi, the 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 generative motive for creating, you know, the, the, the laissez-faire, gold standard, wildly corrupt political structure that came after, an economic structure that came after the Civil War. Uh, it, the people that it uh, refused to recognize as, as, as Republican subjects were the ones who needed to come together to oppose it. And they were never... It never it was never close to happening. What hath God wrought is very good by Daniel Howe. That's that's part of the same uh, 
the Oxford series of American history. Those are all, I recommend all of those. James McPherson's uh, Battle Cry of Freedom is another one of those. What's fun is that they all have the exact same uh, uh, font. Although I got to say, I'm not a fan of the fact that they do footnotes, which is another style thing for the Oxford uh, Americans. I don't know why, especially like they're not, there's never anything in the footnotes. I don't know why you wouldn't just go with endnotes. But yeah, I'm going to keep thinking about it. Keep thinking of a way that they could have clapped the... They needed to just clap the fucking... The, 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 the slave... Uh, they needed to overthrow. Like, legitimately overthrow. Instead of just, uh, like, mildly inconvenience the slaveholding ruling class of, of the South. And as, I still think that it's interesting to think about how Lincoln would have dealt in a second term because the Republican notion that we're talking about, the smallholder republic with a laissez-faire government where, uh, where it's, it's unhealthy to spend too much time as a, as a working class person, that it actually means it's, sign of a bad sign of, it's, bad, it's a sign of bad character if you work for somebody else for too long because you should be working towards a homestead and a farm of your own. Lincoln embodied that. Like, Lincoln believed that shit because he was the perfect example of someone like that. He grew up on a, a literal, like, log cabin, poor kid, drunk father, uh, and he uh, worked himself up to becoming a railroad lawyer and then the president of the United States. And he believed in it. But, you know, the thing about Lincoln is is that Lincoln changed as conditions changed. And that's not true of most of the people who have been president. Now, most people who have been president have not presided over such a period of ferment that, that Lincoln did. But he, that's one of the reasons that he was so uniquely fit for the challenge of being president during the Civil War. And that is why the idea of him being president during Reconstruction, as much as it doesn't guarantee anything, because he did, he was well committed to a lot of these uh, notions that ended up creating, you know, uh, the Black Codes and Jim Crow and robber baron capitalism and uh, a railroad, a corrupt railroad speculation-based economy. But he was also willing to adjust to changing conditions. And the conditions of reconstructing the South would have been uh, very fluid indeed. So anyway, it's interesting. Uh, now, one thing that I think is clear, though, in terms of what if, is that if the federal government had more effectively and consistently applied the use of troops to the South, uh, they would have reduced the number one factor in the collapse of Reconstruction governments, which was uh, white supremacist terrorist violence. Where... Where the, where the troops went, where the cavalry came in, the Klan was broken up and, and freed people were safer. It, it, it worked. They could do it. If it had been more universally applied and more consistently applied, it would, have, and it, it would have had an effect. The thing is, how do you establish a political will to maintain that 
investment because it costs money. And those troops, people who were pushing across to the West, those troop, those people, uh, they want, they needed troops to protect them from those pesky Indians who kept asserting rights to the land that they had always held. One thing that you would need for any kind of useful reconstruction would have been a huge slowing of westward expansion, which of course, as again, cuts against the prerogatives of the, the, the presiding Republican orthodoxy, including what Lincoln embodied. But another thing you see uh, after the collapse of uh, the economy following the panic of uh, the panic of uh, 1876 is that economic precarity exacerbated racial violence in the South and undermined Reconstruction governments. And that, those collapse, that, that economic uh, failure was caused by all the things that the Republicans had, uh, in, um, had created as the economic structure of the post-war era. Speculative railroad investment as the engine for, uh, for economic expansion. And then austerity and uh, tight money in the aftermath of the collapse. 73, yes, sorry. It's interesting to imagine, you know, a, a loose money, a greenback-based American economy after the Civil War. What would even England have done? Because England had an ability, even if you weren't on the gold standard, to, uh, to discipline because of the need for trade. All right, so I've been talking, so I want to see if anybody asks any questions. If anybody was asking any questions about the book, I will try to hit those. But I've been talking. It's hard to talk and look at the chat at the same time. Yeah, that's the thing. We have a greenback standard now, and all the same ruling elites are in charge. But that's because it came after all of the capital formations that the gold standard allowed in the late 19th century. Like everything, all the changes, gold standard, then the, the creation of the Federal Reserve, then the suspension of convertibility of gold, uh, and then finally the final abolition of the gold standard were all done at not because of popular pressure, not because of a working class demand, but out of the necessity to maintain the existing uh, financial structure. I don't know, Chief, I don't know anything about Chief Keefe. He's a rapper. Who, who do you think I am? Why do you think I know anything about rap? Good Lord.
Was the panic about national debt back then more sincere? I mean, you can maybe argue it was a little bit just because, you know, economic, economics as a discipline was relatively new. A lot of this stuff was theoretical. Uh, but foundationally, if they thought it, was, it would have been good for them, they would have been fine with it. I mean, that's the end of the, end of the line. That's, that's the end of it all. Uh, if, if they thought it was, if, and, and the thing is, is that no matter how, how horrified elites are of debt, they take it on as needed, just in a way that never seems to increase economic democracy. Uh, somebody's asking about the gilded liberals thinking that the Republicans could just be supplanted. Is that like socialists thinking the Democrats could be supplanted? Uh, I guess in a way, in that they're both the, the byproduct of insularity. Like the gilded liberals, uh, the liberal Republicans who nominated Greeley and split off from the Republicans, uh, they, in, in 1872, they... They assumed because of their totality of control over uh, good opinion that they had some sort of uh, purchase beyond, you know, uh, writers and, and professionals. Uh, and it turns out, no, they didn't. Uh, and in the same way, like modern socialists, one of the main problems has been the fact that because political uh, thought is so... Uh, constrained by uh, the like bubble, the epistemic bubbles that pop up in the broader you know social media sphere, and how those are not connected really to to any anything concrete, and 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 people who aren't opting to have those conversations, it gives people sort of a uh, a unrealistic uh, expectation of what people want, and 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 how people. Uh, are going to respond. I still think that the, that the Democratic Party has to collapse, that's for sure. Uh, but it's not going to be because of any political formation that is, made, as I have said, that's, that's, that's going to come along through online any more than the liberal Republicans were able to overthrow the stalwarts because a bunch of newspaper editors thought uh, the gold standard was a good idea. All right, I got to get off soon.
Apologies for the technical issues. I'm figuring things out. I never know what to do on the internet. What will be the tipping point for, all right, that's a good way to end it. What will be the current tipping point for currently constructed capitalism? Do you have to acknowledge the real possibility that there will be no tipping point? That, that, that it, it will, things will get worse, obviously, and fewer and fewer people will be able to find any sort of livelihood under capitalism, and more and more people are going to be kind of spit out and turned into unpeople outside of the borders of, of, uh, of civilized commerce, uh, but that the structures will maintain their integrity uh, until the very end, uh, until it's you know until it's just a couple of underground Amazon warehouses uh, controlled by robots. But if it does, uh, the the end of the petrodollar will probably would do it. I think. If 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 the U.S. if the dollar is no longer the reserve currency, you'd have some that would cause a crisis that the system is not equipped to defeat. But for that very reason, it's unlikely to happen in the near future because the ruling elites of basically everywhere on Earth depend on this current system, and none of them have any alternative to it. World Systems Analysis. I'm a fan. Wallerstein, I'm a fan. Uh, I think it's 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 a it's a very useful furtherance of uh, it, it's essentially it takes like the the insights of the early Marxists uh, and like you know the Leninist notion of imperialism and then extrapolates beyond that to the current the current reality that none of them could anticipate because. Uh, it happened after they died. All right. I'll see you folks later. Bye-bye. I hope that sounded okay. I'm, I'm, I, feel, I feel a little rusty. I feel like I was stammering. But I hope it was all lucid.